Well, good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to see you here today at the Vista on this beautiful summer August Sunday. If we have not met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. Uh, and if you're joining us for the, the first time, or I think I counted up, we've had like 831 Sundays here at Vista. So first, or number 831, we are so glad that you're here. We hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted at the Vista. Before we jump in, wanted to remind you that uh, next Sunday, the 29th at 5 p.m., we've got a night of worship coming up. It's a fantastic night. We just slow down. We sing some songs. We celebrate baptism. I think we've got 25 or 30 people being baptized. It's going to be unbelievable. Yeah, you can clap for that. It's a good clap for baptisms in, in general. So we would love to see you there to welcome all these new people into Jesus' family together. And then also, it's actually a really great thing for you to invite other people to. And you can be as skeptical of Jesus as you want. But when you see a father baptize his little girl, oh, I'm telling you, it's hard to not believe in that moment. And so invite some people you know, invite some friends, night of worship, child care will be provided 5 to 6.15 next Sunday night, the 29th. We would love to see you there. Now, today we are in the third week of our uh, new series called Exploring the Essentials, series where we're looking at a few beliefs and practices that are and have always been essential to historic Orthodox Christian faith because we want to make sure that our faith stays both faithful and fresh, right? And that's hard to do, a faith that's both faithful and fresh because, you know, any of you ever played the, uh, what do you call it, like the, uh, the telephone game? You ever played the telephone game? You know, if I were to give someone at the far side of the room over there a message, I don't know. Austin hates Brussels sprouts, okay? Because the best Brussels sprout is not as good as, what, the worst French fry. If you were to pass that down, person to person to person to person, all the way to the other side of the room, well, by the time it reached the other side of the room, the message would be what? It definitely wouldn't be Austin hates Brussels sprouts, would it be? Austin hates, Austin hates puppies, Austin is an Eagles fan, it could be something terrible. But that's what happens, things get lost in translation. And so we need to periodically explore the essentials and brush up on the basics because otherwise we might accidentally end up making Christianity up for ourselves. And like I told you a couple weeks ago, you don't get to make Christianity up for yourself. Christianity was created by God in Christ and then entrusted to the church for the work of faithfully receiving preserving and passing on the faith under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And this is all very important for people like you and me to remember because we are all very infatuated with this very modern idea, you know, that we're all supposed to be very, very independent, radical thinkers who make up our own minds and think for ourselves. And when we succumb to this temptation to think of ourselves as very radical, independent thinkers, just like everybody else who make up our own minds and we think for ourselves, what actually ends up happening is very predictable and very boring. Namely, we tend to end up making Christianity up for ourselves. Right? We edit and update the faith, thinking we're doing everybody a huge favor. Right? We're saving Christianity. But all we're actually doing is impoverishing the faith. Because trust me, the one thing that the world does not need more of is Christianity according to you. Or Christianity according to me. No, what the world needs, desperately needs, is Christianity according to Christ. According to Scripture. According to the church. Um, I speak from more than a little bit of experience here. Uh, because over the last, I don't know, Getting older, 20 or so years, I guess, at this point, I've been on a, on a spiritual journey that I would assume many of you have either been on at some point or are on right now. I, uh, 
I was raised in a more conservative, and even more than conservative, a, a very fundamentalist context. As I got older and kind of came of age, you know, went to college, you know, became a man, all that good stuff, I, I realized that there were some problems, some very serious problems with my very fundamentalist upbringing. Namely, I realized that fundamentalists, bless their hearts, they had a very bad habit of making Christianity up by adding to it. Right? They would take historic Orthodox Christian faith and then they would smuggle in a bunch of clearly non-essential beliefs and things like the age of the earth or the roles of men and women in the house and in the church, the proper translation of the Bible, or worst of all, the unholiness of margaritas. And we all know margaritas are very holy. <laughs> and so in reaction to that, I, uh, you know, I, I went the other way for a season. You know how it is. You know, everybody thinks where they grew up sucks. Everybody in the whole history of the world. So I went the other way for a while, and I was, I was very drawn to these allegedly more radical and progressive forms of Christianity. But eventually, I realized that, that for me, at least, that, that was a dead end, too. Because I came to believe that the dear radical progressives, they were really just doing the exact same things the fundamentalists. Only instead of making Christianity up by adding to it, they were making Christianity up by subtracting from it. Right? They were just arrogantly tossing out these basic Christian beliefs about God, about Scripture, about salvation, about the church, about humans. And so at the end of this very long and exhausting journey, I, I came to a place where I believed that basic, classic, historic Christian orthodoxy was more faithful than the fundamentalists. And it was more radical than the progressives. I came to see that I didn't want any of that weak, fundamentalist grape juice. Nor did I want any of that fashionable, progressive seltzer water. Because what I had tasted and could now not get enough of was that fine, aged wine of classic Christian orthodoxy. And I'm telling you, once you have tasted some of that, then man, that weak, fundamentalist grape juice... And that fashionable progressive seltzer water, it's just not going to do anymore. It's not going to satisfy you because, y'all, classic Christian orthodoxy, it's faithful and it's fresh. It's flexible and it's firm. It's conservative and it's progressive instead of being conservative or progressive. And it and not Christianity according to you or me is what the world so desperately needs. Amen? If you're joining us for the first time in the series today, we are walking through these six doctrines that we at the Vista, following the lead of the church, the big C church throughout space and time, called primary doctrines, meaning doctrines that are essential to historic Orthodox Christian faith. So far, we have covered a doctrine of God, doctrine of Scripture, and today we're going to talk a bit about what the Bible and what the church say about us, what the Bible and the church have said about humans. You can find all these beliefs at thevista.tv slash beliefs, but here's what our doctrine says about humans. We believe all humanity is created in God's own image and yet also fallen and in need of redemption. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. As Dave mentioned last week, they are quite important. Uh, we're going to turn to a few different places. We're going to be in Genesis and Psalms mainly today. We'll start out here in Genesis 1 at the very beginning. We'll read verses 26 through 28 and then we will be in Psalm 8. All right, so Genesis 1, 26 through 28. <clears throat> then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let him rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Turn to Psalm 8 now. We'll read the whole thing. It's only 11 verses. This is David writing. says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouths of infants and nursing babes. You have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. Now, God, when I consider your heavens, right, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have made, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. And yet you have made him a little lower than God. You've crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also all the beasts of the field. The birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Psalm 8. Now... I don't want anybody in here this morning to get too cocky. But did you hear what the Bible just said about you? Genesis 1 said that you have been created in God's very own image. In the imago Dei, that's a nice little Latin phrase that means the image of God. You've been created in God's very own image. Now in the context of Genesis 1, it's clear that what that means to be created in God's own image is just that God rules over all creation, so he's created you and I to rule over creation with him and on his behalf. God's put all things under our feet. We rule over all creation. And if Genesis 1 doesn't put a little bit of swagger in your step, then Psalm 8 definitely will. Because what does Psalm 8 just say about you? I mean, did you pick up on it? It's unbelievable. The psalmist, right, he starts by looking around at this big, beautiful world that God has made. He, he looks up to the heavens and he says, God, when I look at the sun and the moon and a hundred billion stars, what is man that you would think about him? What's the son of man that you would bother to care about him? And yet you've, you've crowned him with glory and majesty. You've put all things under his feet. You have made him and her a little lower than God. That's what the Bible says about you, a little lower than God. And do you feel that very, um, that very pleasant, refreshing sensation just kind of rising up through your body right now when you hear all that about yourself? That is swag. That's this just deep, profound sense of, of confidence and dignity and chutzpah. That's a good word. Chutzpah that rises through you when you realize that God Almighty says that you are a little lower than God. Some of you need to turn to your spouse right now and just tell them, hey, did you hear what the man said? Right? It's, it's unbelievable. That's what the Bible says. And I know it sounds crazy, but we just read it in the Bible together so you know I'm not making it up. And so anytime I personally am feeling a little bit low. Anybody ever feel a little bit low sometimes? You need a little pick-me-up? Whenever I, I'm a little low and I need to pick me up, I just crack up in the old Bible to Psalm 8. I read it. And then I walk around the rest of the day like this. You know, you're just, just feeling yourself. You read Psalm 8. It's unbelievable. Oh, I get my cane. I put on a hat. It's fantastic. I tell my wife, she'll ask me to change my diaper or something for my baby. I'm like, hey, babe, you know who you're talking to here? A little lower than God. Got other things to do. It works just as well as you would think it would. A little lower than God. Wipe your baby's butt if you want to stay married. Anytime 
I read Psalm 8. You're a little lower than God, right? I, I always am reminded of this quote from Thomas Merton. He was this really brilliant and beloved Catholic spiritual writer. He died not too long ago. He tells this story, okay, of walking around downtown Louisville, Kentucky, and having what can only be described as a sort of a, like a revelatory experience, a peek behind the eyes of God, this glimpse into the grandeur and glory of a human. All right, listen to what he says. I, I love this. He says, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut and the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people, that they were mine. I was theirs. It was like waking from a dream with such relief and joy that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. And if only everybody could realize this, but it can't be explained. There's no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. Isn't that good? And again, y'all, this is not some kind of like new age self-help silliness, okay? This is the Bible saying nobody thinks more highly of humans than God does. That's what the Bible says about humans. And while that is absolutely what the Bible says about humans, it is not all that the Bible says about humans. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Genesis and Psalms. We're just going to be a couple pages over in each of them. Be in Genesis 6. Verses 5 through 6, right? So we've got our little image of God. All the animals are under their feet, humans here. That's been going on for a little while. Genesis 6, 5 through 6 now. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made them and grieved in his heart. Psalm 14 now, because I don't know that that was very clear. We'll do Psalm 14. We'll do verses 1 through 3. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand. Anybody who seeks after God... But they've all turned aside together. They've all become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. No, especially not you. And do you feel that, um, that very bleak, melancholy sensation rising up through your, your body right now? You know, kind of the, the exact opposite of that other feeling that you felt a few moments ago. Well, that, my friends, that is humiliation. That's this this painful but undeniable realization that while you are, in fact, just a little lower than God, you are also a really big pain in the butt. You are. Somebody's got to tell you, okay? And, of course, the more theologically precise way to say that you are a really big pain in the butt is to say that you are a sinner, Not that you slip up sometimes and sin, no, 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 but that on a profound level that you struggle to comprehend, you are sinful. We are greedy, and we are selfish, and we are insecure, and we are petty, and we are self-righteous, and we perpetuate injustices, and we want to sleep with people we're not married to. We tell big 
and little lies all day long. There is something wrong with you, man, and you can't fix it. You can numb it, medicate it, you can work on it, blame others for it, but you can't fix it. Or as the great philosopher Jerry Seinfeld once said, people, they're the worst. And so as you can see, we seem to be caught in a rather painful contradiction here. Because which one is it? Are we the best or are we the worst? Well, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, his children, who were very young at the time, they were devastated. They were devastated. And in the immediate aftermath, a very famous family friend came by to comfort the children, to read to them as they were trying to process the trauma of their daddy's murder. And do you know who this very famous family friend was? Uh, This man who took time out of his busy life, his busy schedule, to go read to Martin Luther King's traumatized children in the immediate aftermath of their daddy's murder? It was Bill Cosby. Bill Cosby. Now here's a picture of it. This is Bill Cosby reading to Martin Luther King Jr.'s children in the immediate aftermath of his murder. The same Bill Cosby who, as we all or mostly all sadly now know, had a habit of drugging women in order to sleep with them. The same man did both of those things. And that is the glaring contradiction down deep at the heart of every single human. Dignity and depravity. Kindness and meanness. Generosity and pettiness. A little lower than God and yet a brazen, brazen sinner. Or as we put it in our doctrine, all humanity is created in God's very own image and yet fallen and in need of redemption. And so here's the question I want to spend the remainder of our time on. What does it look like for us to accept and faithfully live this tension between our dignity and our depravity? Between Genesis 1 and Genesis 6, between Psalm 8 and Psalm 14, what does it look like to live that tension? Well, one of the things that we're doing throughout this series that I really like is we're taking an essential Christian belief and then we are coupling it with an essential Christian practice. And that is in order to ruthlessly reject the idea that Christianity is primarily a matter of thinking the right things about God. Because no, it's not. When Jesus invited people to follow him, what did he ask him to do? Did he say, hey, I want you to come follow me so I can teach you to think all the right things about me? Is that what Jesus said? No, when Jesus invited people to follow him, he literally said what? Follow me. I want you to follow me around ancient Palestine as I do stuff, and I want you to do the stuff that I tell you to do. Because as we've talked throughout this series, believing something means acting like it's true. doesn't matter what you think you believe. Believing something is acting like it's true. And so what does it look like to act as if what the Bible says about our dignity and depravity is true. There are a lot of great candidates here, but the, the Christian practice that I think best embodies acting like what the Bible says about humans is true is this very ancient Christian practice of confession. So what is confession? Well, confession, more or less, is telling the truth about yourself. 
When you confess, you tell the truth about yourself. So let's take it one level deeper here. So what is the truth about yourself? Well, the truth about you is everything that Scripture just said about you. And so telling the truth about yourself starts with you boldly and unashamedly confessing your belovedness, your grandeur and glory, your infinite dignity as a beloved son or daughter of the living God. That's the first thing you confess, that you are a little lower than God. You are a son or daughter of the living God. In the classic confession of sin that millions of Christians use all over the world every single day, the very first line is this, Almighty and most merciful Father. That's the first line in the confession of sin. Almighty and most merciful Father. And notice what you're doing when you start off your confession of sin like that. You're reminding yourself that the God you are confessing your sins to is not some angry, distant, disappointed deity. But rather, you are confessing your sins to who? To your almighty and your most merciful Father. You are confessing your sins to the God who loves you, redeemed you, made you, loves you more than you love yourself. And once you realize that and you really accept that, then you are free to start boldly confessing those sins because you realize you've got nothing to fear and nothing to hide. So in a confession of sin, you boldly proclaim your belovedness. And then what do you do? You start boldly confessing those sins, man. You've got nothing to hide. This is the way the rest of the confession reads, right? So you start off, Almighty and most merciful Father, we confess that we have sinned against thee in thought and word and deed by what we have done, by what we have left undone. We have not loved thee with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent for the sake of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in thy ways, delight in thy will and walk in thy ways to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. I want us to pause here for just one second. I want you to think about something. Can you imagine how free you would feel if you stopped spending so much time trying to hide or deny your sinfulness? And instead, you just started off each day fully owning it. Can you imagine? Yeah, I can tell you. Few practices have been more transformative for me than starting off my day with a confession of sin. Because then as my day proceeds, and I inevitably do something, many things, very sinful or stupid, and it happens quite often for me, and my inner defense attorney, do any of you have an inner defense attorney? I think we all have one. Mine's very good. He's really good at getting me out of jams. Right, so I'll do something sinful or stupid, right? My inner defense attorney, he'll, he'll leap up and he'll start arguing for my innocence. Oh, no, no, you don't understand. Austin didn't really mean that. It was actually somebody else's fault. Or if you interpret it this way, blah, blah. So my inner defense attorney, he's just going to work on my behalf. But then the spirit is able to confront my inner defense attorney and let him know that his services are not needed. Because I have already confessed to all the charges. I start off the day going, Your Honor, guilty as charged, and a lot more you don't know about. (laughs) Guilty as charged, and the defense rests for the day. Can you imagine how good it feels to stop wasting all your energy all day long? Then after I do that, y'all, I don't have to waste my day defending myself. Because that's Jesus' job. And he is very, very good at it. All that to say, the most powerful thing about confession is it keeps you grateful. It keeps you grateful. And gratitude is perhaps the most explicitly Christian of all virtues. 
because it helps us thread that needle between entitlement and shame. And threading that needle between entitlement on the one hand and shame on the other is very, very difficult. I once heard Anne Lamott say that all of us all day long are just fluctuating back and forth between self-grandiosity and self-loathing. Does that sound right? Just all day long, you're just back and forth between I'm the best and I'm the worst. Like one moment you're just walking around like the universe revolves around you and only owes you good things. And the next moment you are wallowing in shame and self-pity because your friends posted some pictures of that trip that you weren't invited to. And you're just broken. You know, one moment you're just so pumped and you're out of your mind. The next moment, you're, oh my God, I don't understand why nobody, I wear the right shoes. I don't post anything political on Instagram. It's only pictures of my kids. Why do I not get invited to these parties and these trips? And so here's the deal. You are a brazen sinner. You are. Trust me, it's worse than you think. But even if you weren't, heck, even if you lived a perfect life, do you know what your perfection would entitle you to? Nothing. Nothing. Your perfection would entitle you to nothing. You, my friend, you are a creature. You are dust in the hands of the eternal God who is your creator, which means the only thing you will ever be entitled to is nothing. It's literally nothing. So there's nothing you can ever do to make God owe you anything, period, full stop, ever. And yet God has freely chosen to give you, to gift you everything. This is the good news we call the gospel. Not because you deserved it. You do not. Not because you deserved it, but just because he wanted to. Because you are a brazen, brazen sinner. But far more importantly, you are a beloved sinner. You are a sinner in the hands of a very loving God. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for today. We do not deserve to be here. We are a big deal, a little lower than God, created in the image of God. You have put all things under our feet. You have crowned us with glory and grandeur. We walk around shining like the sun if we could only see it. And yet we're fallen. We're selfish. We're insecure. We're petty. We're unjust. We're lustful. You name it, we got it. And so rather than being entitled God, I think we're entitled to only good things. And rather than being ashamed, ashamed of our sin, ashamed of the things that have happened to us, ashamed of the things we have done to others, rather than that, what you want us to learn to be is grateful. Grateful that we are sons and daughters of the living God. Grateful that you have taken responsibility for us, that you have accomplished for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. And so I pray for all of my friends in the room this morning. I know there's a lot of shame in the room this morning because I, I know there are a lot of humans in the room this morning who have done some awful things, who have had awful things done to them. And so we bring our shame before you. We bring our entitlement before you. God, there's a lot of entitlement in the room this morning. We wonder why bad things happen to good people. We never ask why good things happen to bad people. And God, we pray that you would help us this morning to receive a little bit more deeply and fully this good news of the gospel that we are entitled to nothing and yet we have been gifted everything.
that we are beloved sons and daughters of the living God, that that is the first, the truest, and the final word on every last one of us. I know it's hard to believe, but we pray that you would help us to believe it a little more today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.